So this is an alarming scenario in which the law and criminals, it would seem, are both trying by different means to thwart a reveler's ascent to power. Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. I am a veteran international affairs journalist and the editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. On August 20th, a former academic and diplomat and anti-corruption crusader, Bernardo Arevalo, stunned the world with a landslide victory in Guatemala's presidential election. Arevalo won with over 60% of the vote, besting a former first lady who represented Guatemala's long-dominant conservative and corrupt political establishment. This was a truly unexpected result. People who professionally observe Central American politics, including my guest today, Ivan Briscoe, were genuinely taken by surprise. Ivan Briscoe is the program director for Latin America and the Caribbean at the International Crisis Group. As he explains, Aravallo is genuinely committed to democracy and rooting out corruption. And this is putting him at odds with the incumbent political establishment, which is riven with corruption. So, despite the election results, the establishment is fighting back and taking measures to prevent Aravallo from wielding power in office and enacting meaningful change. We kick off with a discussion of Aravallo's fascinating biography before having a longer conversation about the significance of his landslide victory to the politics of Guatemala and to the region. A few announcements before we start. First, it is September, which means it is the busiest and most significant month on my own annual professional calendar. The UN General Assembly kicks off in just a few short weeks. As in years past, I am partnering with the United Nations Foundation for a special daily UNGA podcast series. I'm really looking forward to putting that together for you guys and delivering you up-to-date news and analysis of what is happening at the 78th United Nations General Assembly. For premium subscribers, I've assembled a bit of a sneak preview of my own personal plans for UNGA, including some of the stories I intend to follow, the events I'll be attending, and other random musings about the United Nations General Assembly. 
This coming September will be the 17th Anga I have attended out of 18 years. I've developed some expertise on the topic over time. And in that premium episode, which you can find on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or via Substack, I share with you some of my personal insights. If you're listening to me right now in Apple Podcasts, you can access that episode directly in the app. If you are a Spotify listener, you can get that episode and the entire premium secret feed via Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash global dispatches, and there is a seamless Patreon to Spotify integration. You can also get a premium subscription through globaldispatches.org. And lastly, I want to recommend another podcast on the block called Making Peace Visible. On the Making Peace Visible podcast, host Jamil Simon speaks with journalists, storytellers, peace builders who are on the front lines of both peace and conflict. You know, we hear all the time stories about violence. Violence is often in the news, yet we rarely hear stories about peace. Making Peace Visible, however, flips that script and tells you the story of those who are working to make peace. Making Peace Visible is a great example of solutions journalism, and you can find Making Peace Visible wherever you listen to podcasts. Now, here is my conversation with Ivan Briscoe of the International Crisis Group. Can you walk us through Bernardo Arevalo's biography? It's a unique biography, I take it, for a politician in Guatemala to a certain extent. He is an extraordinary person, Bernardo Arevalo. He combines various wings of academic excellence. He is, of course, a political scientist. He's also a biochemist. He spent many years in the peacebuilding world working for an organization called Interpeace. I have to say I had the good fortune to cross paths with him a number of times during that period, and I always found him an enormously enjoyable and stimulating person, a wonderful person to speak with and discuss issues from around the world. His knowledge of the world is extraordinary. But he's also obviously a proud Guatemalan. He worked for the Guatemalan Foreign Ministry. He was an ambassador for Guatemala. He's been a deputy in the National Assembly for the last few years. And obviously that brings us to us to an important detail as to his biography. He is the son of the first democratically elected Guatemalan president, Juan Jose Arevalo, who came to power in the 1940s following the end of a long period of extremely tough dictatorship. And he began the process of removing the restrictions on freedom of expression, allowing a more plural society to express itself. But unfortunately, his democratically elected successor, Jacobo Arbenz, was famously removed in a coup in 1954, which, as many of your listeners will know, was supported by the CIA. So it was in exile in Uruguay, I take it, that Aravalo was born like four years after the Eisenhower administration-backed coup. And so he was born in Uruguay as an exile, which I think is like a fascinating wrinkle to this biography. I mean, the fact that he was born in Uruguay is, is interesting. 
He's accused by his opponents of being Uruguayan, which is which is hardly his fault, of being sort of non-patriotic in a way, which is untrue. But this sort of biography is quite common in the what you might call the years of lead, the decades of civil wars, military dictatorships, national security regimes, and which produced so many exiles, and of course the birth of so many children abroad. But there's no doubt that that experience contributed, I think, to Arevalo's cosmopolitan nature, which is one of the outstanding aspects of his character. And and it's fairly unusual, it has to be said, in Guatemala, which has traditionally been a somewhat inward-looking country, and its political leaders' visions have been somewhat confined to the nation itself. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating. I, I read somewhere, at least, that he you know, has turned down like tenure appointments for professorial positions at like Harvard and you know, has worked in think tanks and, of course, a, as a, a diplomat as well. What are the origin stories of his involvement directly in Guatemalan politics? Well, this is interesting, and, I, and if I might, may just intersperse a little bit of my own personal experience of when I spoke with Bernardo a number of years ago. What happened? He was obviously a distinguished former ambassador. He had a prominent role in the international peacemaking organization, Interpeace. But Guatemala went through a period of quite profound change between 2007 and 2016. And it was in that period that a UN-backed body in the country, CISIG, the Commission Against Impunity in Guatemala, began working on a series of cases identifying key corrupt actors in the state, in the security forces, in political life. This was a, a mission which had come about because of the high level of violence and human rights violations which had been occurring in Guatemala in the late 90s and early 2000s. It was backed by the political establishment initially, came into being, and started leading these cases, which of course famously ended, or rather climaxed in a sense, with the resignation of the sitting president, Otto Perez Molina, in 2015. But even before then, the investigations, so the UN officials working alongside young prosecutors, were unearthing these extraordinary cases of grand corruption, linking organized crime and business figures and political leaders. And it was a moment of clear rupture in the country. It was evident that the way of doing things, the way Guatemalan democracy had operated since its return in the 1980s, was very deeply flawed, full of vices. And it was in that context that Bernardo Arevalo, as far as I know, decided that the time was right to go back into Guatemalan politics because of the understanding, I think, that although all the hard work in some sense had been done by the judicial system and the United Nations in uncovering the flaws of the system, it would require a political movement to recompose the Guatemalan state, to make it more transparent and accountable. The judicial system on its own couldn't do that. And so that's a little bit the origin of the Semilla movement, which he created eight or so years ago, which, to be absolutely honest, until the results of the first round of the elections came in late in June, was widely assumed to be a good-hearted, honest, technocratic, extremely competent party, which wouldn't go anywhere in Guatemalan politics. And to Arevalo's great credit, 
his perseverance, his persistence, proved all those naysayers and experts and opinion pollsters wrong. And I take it you were among those who probably discounted the potential that semia, which means seed, would just emerge so surprisingly as like the leader in Guatemalan politics. Like it shocked like a lot of experts. To my shame, I believed, as did many other colleagues, and I think most people in Semilla, actually, we believe the opinion polls. I think having gone through this experience a number of times in recent Latin American elections, I shouldn't have. I think now after the Guatemalan poll, I will now treat all opinion polls, wherever they come from, with great distrust. But no, he was not on the radar. There were four or five candidates who seemed to be in with a chance of proceeding to a runoff. It was definitely going to a runoff. No one was going to get close to 50%. But he wasn't among them. Apparently, his close colleagues in his party did have poll numbers suggesting that they were doing somewhat better than expected. But it's very difficult to believe polls when they come from the party themselves. Clearly, what happened was both a misreading by pollsters, but also a very great surprise. What happened in the days before that election seemed in some way to have involved a crystallization of a support base around him because he was the only option of a more fundamental change in Guatemalan politics and of a return to that anti-corruption campaign, those motives of anti-corruption that had effectively petered out once the CISIG had left the country, had been ordered to leave the country in 2019. And so in a field of multiple candidates, with none of them polling particularly highly, he managed in those last days and weeks to consolidate enough people, enough votes, 15 or so percent, to get him over the line and into the runoff. And so he did get into the runoff. Then he smashed his opponent in the runoff, earning something like over 60 or around 60% of the vote. So obviously something resonated about him personally or about his messaging. Were there any particular like policies or was it like a personality issue that drove people to support him. You know, he's been described, I see, as like center left. I don't know if you like agree with that assessment. He hasn't been described as one of like the kind of central or, or Latin American kind of lefty firebrands. And he certainly stands in contrast to the conservative political establishment of Guatemala. But, you know, were there certain like policies that he was proposing that you think resonated deeply? Or what was it that put him over the edge? I think first and foremost is the level of discontent of the Guatemalan people with their current government and with the political system at large. All those marches that we saw in 2015 at the time when the investigation into the president, Pérez Molina, was taking place, which led to his resignation, that citizen mobilization on behalf of cleaner, more effective government, that hadn't died. It had been pushed to one side amid the different movements of politics. And there had been, as I'm sure we'll comment later, a sustained attempt to restore the corrupt political system, which had been undermined in previous years. But I think the hunger of Guatemalans for a return to a better governance was very strong. Now, Arevalo himself, I would consider a social democrat. And it's interesting the way that he, as a social democrat, 
believing in responsible policies. None of them, it has to be said, too radical. Everything in his manifesto is costed. He's given budget estimations for all his different proposals. He has said he will not increase taxes. It is not a threatening approach for the future of Guatemala if you happen to be in the business elite. But it is very strong on issues of clean governments, anti-corruption, sustainable development, inclusion of indigenous peoples, and the notion of a plural democracy. It is unusual in some ways in Latin America that the campaign for change should be captured by a really moderate social democrat. It's not unprecedented, of course. We saw Lula's victory last year in, in being the victory of, to a degree, moderation and social democracy over a far more right-wing option. But there's no doubt that in the broader context of Latin America, at the moment, you do see more radical options making the running. But particularly in Central America, there is a clearly an authoritarian wave underway. And he has defied that. If there's one thing to say about Bernardo Arevalo, is that he's got a very deep and clear democratic vocation. And in, in Central America, that's not something which we, we could say of many governments. Of course, you've got Nicaragua under the dictatorship of Daniel Ortega. You have next door to Guatemala, the government, highly popular, but very authoritarian government of Nayib Bukele. And this is the neighborhood in which you will operate. And these are the countries which have been influencing a little bit the perceptions of Guatemala. And I think a lot of people before the elections assumed that the a Bukele-style message, a call for a hard state-led crackdown on crime, putting the criminals and the gang members in prison would win at the end of the day and that those candidates would be more successful. But we have been proved wrong and it's almost as if Guatemala is reverting to that spring-like emergence of democracy as, as we saw in the 1940s. So I take it, however, that the Guatemalan political establishment, which Arvalo has now challenged so profoundly with his just massive victory in this election, is not sort of going gently into the night. Can you explain what has happened since this victory? Far from it. The Guatemalan political establishment is limpet-like. It hangs on. It relies on the fact that in a poor country, it is able to tap into a large amount of resources. It's able to use the impunity it has through control of the legal system, control of the prosecution service at the moment, and its influence in political parties, and its influence in the media, of course. So its plan ahead of the elections was clear to see. Three candidates that had seemingly got a chance of getting to the runoffs, but were not aligned with this corrupt establishment, with these powers, politicians and businessmen and, and organized criminals, that were not aligned with them, were struck down, were unable to run. One of them, clearly from the left, who had got 10% in a previous election and therefore was clearly a potential candidate for advancing to the second round, Thelma Cabrera, and two from the right, one, the son of a former president, and the other, a largely upstart businessman who was coming in with a more a radical outsider discourse, was struck down for feeble reasons by the electoral authorities and the constitutional court. Clearly, the idea was that all 
potential challengers to the system who refuse to conform with the expectations of that system would not be allowed to stand. And do remember, this is in the broader context of a campaign to kick out and to prosecute all those involved in the campaign against corruption under the C6. So we've got 30 or so prosecutors and journalists exiled from the country. We have the head of really one of the leading investigative newspapers, not just in Guatemala, in the whole of Central America, El Periodico, in jail on trumped-up charges of money laundering. He's been convicted for six years. Jose Ruben Zamora. So really a focused, selective campaign against all those who could bring a spotlight on the vices of the Guatemalan political business system have been muzzled in the country or forced to leave. But even so, it seems that Arevalo was overlooked because Arevalo is really just a strong critic of the system. But presumably, the powers that be were looking at the same opinion polls that myself and other people were looking at and were assuming that he had no chance of getting through to the second round and therefore could be left to one side, was not a threat. And this seems to have blown up in the establishment's face. And therefore, its efforts since the first round have been various exploratory ways, if you like, through the legal system to see if there's any way they could stop Arevalo before he assumes the presidency in January. And have they been successful? I mean, we're speaking Wednesday, August 30th, and it seems that there has been some shenanigans uh, that have been pulled by the kind of corrupt legal system of Guatemala. So, like, where do things stand? Look, it, it's early days. And Arevalo has made very clear that he knows this is not going to be a smooth path to the presidency in January. And when the current president, Jean Maté, gives a declaration yesterday that there will be a smooth transition and that he will hand over power, no one entirely believes him. Because at the same time that as you have political business leaders in public giving declarations of respect for democracy, respect for the electoral process and calls for a smooth transition, behind the scenes, other things are happening. And the main legal case, which is being pushed by a deeply suspicious part of the prosecution service, the public ministry, as it's called, is involves an, an effort to remove the legal status of the party which Arevalo stood for, the Movimiento Semilla, the seed movement. Now, the party has been currently disbanded. Obviously, there will still be a process of appeal led by Arevalo and others. And for the moment, it doesn't seem to threaten Arevalo's prospects of arriving at the presidency. All it means is that his party in Congress no longer exists, and he will have difficulties handling Congress, but we knew that already. Yet there are rumours circling in Guatemala, and in fact one which has been publicly denounced by one of those candidates who was kept out of the presidential race, who has said that the plan of those in power is to use the, as it were, the outlawing of the Semilla movement, it's disbanding, to a basis for threatening the entitlement of Arevalo to assume the presidency. So it will be a question of a cumulative legal battle trying to chip away at his victory. 
It seems improbable. It seems far-fetched from outside. But if you look at what happened between the first round in June and the second round in August, not just that legal challenge, efforts to have a recount. And of course, perhaps one of the most worrying elements that we've seen so far, which was the announcement from the Inter-American Court of Human Rights last week that preventive measures would have to be taken to protect Arevalo and his vice president because there were two separate conspiracies aimed at assassinating them, one of them involving state officials and the other involving gang members. So this is an alarming scenario in which the law and criminals, it would seem, are both trying by different means to thwart a reveler's ascent to power. What can be done to ensure that Aravalo not only like lives, but lives to see him assume the presidency in January? You know, obviously he is widely popular in Guatemala. Is there anything that, say, the U.S. government or more broadly the international community can do to ensure the respect for the democratic process in Guatemala? There were two fundamental approaches which Arevalo should adopt, and I think we can see him moving in both directions. First, on the domestic front, he has got to say, I am open to dialogue with all constituencies. I will not lurch in directions which are unexpected. I am not the harbinger of a communist regime. And and it's extraordinary to say that we do still hear discourse and and insults to that effect. And try and peel off, if possible, parts of the establishment in his direction. So there would be parts of the business sector which may support him. There would be small parties in Congress which might be tempted to support him. There will, of course, be civil society. And he has made very explicit calls for the people, the presence of the people and their support on the street, which will be fundamental to him eventually assuming the presidency, that they should be willing to express themselves and mobilize when required. And we can see that in a moment of crisis, we'll be very likely to see those calls resonating once more. So that would be, in a sense, a domestic effort to build up his own block and diffuse those who wish to stop him. I I think outside, the foreign policy angle is absolutely crucial. The US has shown very strong support for the electoral process and for Arevalo's right to become president. And it was interesting, I think, when the issue has been raised at the Organization of American States, the US ambassador has made multiple calls on the Inter-American Democratic Charter, as it were, to suggest that measures against Guatemala under the Democratic Charter could be applied if there were any effort to stop a reveler, which would, of course, involve the possibility of the country being removed from the Organization of American States, it could easily open the door to more US individual sanctions against political elites or judicial figures involved. There's a whole array of possibilities out there. And I think the US government, through its diplomats, have indicated that it is willing to pursue those policies. There's been a statement from both chairs of the Senate Foreign Affairs Committee to that effect as well, calling on the president to use individual sanctions if necessary to preserve the electoral process. So this will be important because joined, of course, to the Latin American effort, because I think if Guatemala, if Arevalo would be to stop now in a context in which most governments in Latin America, particularly South America, 
are in the hands of the centre-left or the left, there would be a wave of outrage far higher than what we saw when Pedro Castillo was impeached and arrested last December in Peru. When that happened in Peru, obviously Castillo had preceded his impeachment and arrest by trying to dissolve Congress and seize absolute power for himself, which rather put him in a spot of disgrace and made it difficult for a number of governments to support him. But if Arevalo fairly elected with a huge landslide majority and a social democrat and a progressive is stopped, I would think we would see Brazil, Chile, Colombia, of course, Mexico unite in a movement to put huge pressure on Guatemala. And I think between the United States and those governments, the situation for the Guatemalan elites involved in any such effort would become extremely difficult. Would they still persevere? Were that to be the case? Were the risk that they would face in removing Arevalo be a level of international isolation of the sort that Guatemala really has never seen before? It's very difficult to say. I will just say, I think, two things. Maybe they would hope that there would be a Republican victory in the US next year. Maybe they would think that the migration issue and cooperation on migration with Washington is so important that eventually the US couldn't let Guatemala remain isolated and cut all diplomatic ties. And I think they'd also look at the case of Honduras, where there was a coup, of course, in 2009, and think at the end of the day, they resisted, they suffered the visa prohibitions and the ban on travel to the United States and some of the other effects of individual sanctions, they persevered. And at the end of the day, the coup won out in that year. So there would be reasons which the Guatemalans opposed, deeply opposed to Arevalo, would take into account to draw up a balance of whether to move or not. But I think it's difficult to say if those elites feel that some of their most important sources of income and power are under direct threat and that there is the risk of a repeat of what happened under the Sisig a decade or so ago, they could act. And it will be really important for the United States to be there, very clearly saying that any action in that direction will not be tolerated. Ivan, thank you so much for your time. It's a pleasure, Mark. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Global Dispatches. The show is produced by me, Mark Leon Goldberg. It is edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts, make sure to follow the show and enable automatic downloads to get new episodes as soon as they're released. On Spotify, tap the bell icon to get a notification when we publish new episodes. And of course, please visit globaldispatches.org to get on our free mailing list, get in touch with me, and access our full archive. Thank you.